Welcome to another edition of This Week in Digital Trust, 11M's regular conversation about all things tech policy, privacy and cybersecurity. I'm Arj and I'm joined again by Jordan. Hi Jordan, how are you going? Um, we've got something a little bit different this week. Hey Arj, yes indeed, something a little bit different to our usual conversation. We've got an interview that our friend Jonathan Gadir, friend of the podcast, friend of 11M, has recorded with a widely published and award-winning privacy academic, Ari Ezra Waldman. It's a great conversation covering Ari Waldman's new book, which is called Industry Unbound, The Inside Story of Privacy, Data and Corporate Power. The book's a really interesting read and it's a great interview too. So I hope other people find it valuable. They cover a lot of ground from why privacy matters, uh, what privacy can learn from product safety, which is a theme we've talked about a few times. The limitations of our current privacy laws in Australia and elsewhere and how privacy laws' emphasis on process, compliance and individual choice can allow companies to perform compliance without materially improving privacy outcomes and how we might draft a more democratic privacy law, which is more focused on substantive outcomes, which better protects individuals from harm and which creates space for privacy-safe innovations. Uh, and don't worry, uh, Clearview AI gets a mention in there too, so maybe not so far from our regular programming. So with that, I'll leave you with uh, Jonathan and Ari. Your privacy is important to us. How many times have you seen that as a prelude to some email with some legal mumbo-jumbo that you don't read? So to talk about the weird world of data privacy. I'm going to have a guest today is Professor Ari Ezra Waldman, a leading authority on law, technology, and society. His title is Professor of Law and Computer Science at Northeastern University. That's in Boston, but he was he's speaking to us from New York. He directs the School of Law's Center for Law, Information, and Creativity. Hi, Ari. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much for coming on. So you've written a book. It's called Industry Unbound, The Inside Story of Privacy, Data, and Corporate Power. And this book kind of reveals how we've come to the place where we are in terms of privacy, where it's just kind of boring and people are just kind of their eyes glaze over and just kind of feel helpless about this issue of what's being done with their data. So I guess I wanted to ask firstly, why should I care if some company wants to collect my data to do personalized marketing? Like where's the harm? It's a really great question and a great place to start. So I'll start with a different recent book from a Mm -hmm. colleague of mine named Uh, Neil Richards, he's a professor at Washington University in St. Louis, and he recently wrote a book called um, Why Privacy Matters. And this this book is in a long line, a long tradition of scholarship about what privacy means and why it's important to us. And when you get down to it, privacy is not about, you know, who has what data or the choices that we make. Privacy is about power because data is about power. If another entity or a person, a company, a government knows information about you, has a lot of information about you and can piece it together, whether it's by, you know, the, what we see on television of police stalking or following someone 24 seven in a dragnet surveillance program, or if it's a, um, if it's a overbearing or secretive company, like we see on the new show Severance, that is gathering data and using data about people, 
if you have data about someone, you have power over that person. You can manipulate them. You can determine what they see, what they hear, what they learn. You can direct them into making certain choices. You can limit their choices. Mm -hmm. So even if you aren't someone who feels that you have anything to hide, although that's very rarely true, no one's life is fully an open book. Like we don't go to the bathroom in the middle of the street outside, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But even if you feel like you have nothing to hide, when some other person or some other entity has information about you, they have the ability to direct or manipulate or obscure or control mm -hmm. the opportunities that you have in life. And that is at core one of the reasons why we should care uh, what happens with our data and what companies are allowed to do with it. Mm -hmm. I guess also there's that whole science fiction-y aspect of what would only take, well, maybe it's not that science fiction-y, but it would only take a small change to the political environment to make all the data that's been collected available to an overbearing or authoritarian state. That's not really science fiction. Uh, that's yeah. the world we are increasingly living in, yeah. whether it's uh, images of people's faces from Hungary that's being used to build facial recognition technology, Hungary, an increasingly authoritarian, illiberal state, whether it's the laws that we have here in the United States, where I'm speaking from, that allows the national security establishment to simply ask a tech company for information about a whole group of people. And the company has to just hand it over. We call them national security letters. They're part of the post 9-11 and then ref uh, post 9-11 reform to information gathering in the United States. Um, and, and very few countries are immune from this intimate connection between private data collectors and government surveillance. So when we think about what happens when a company like Google or Facebook or, uh, you, uh, or TikTok collect our information, mm -hmm. we tend to think about it in narrow terms. Like, uh, well, we give over our information in order to get access to something more efficiently, or we give over our information so we don't have to pay for it in currency. But yeah. that's not really the whole story. When we give over information to another entity in laws, legal, legal regimes across the world, that exposes them to, that exposes that information to what a government might have. And I always often tell people, you know, right now we might be living under an administration that more people trust than the last one, or those of us in our uh, community trust than the last one. But would you want this information in the hands of uh, the previous president of the United States to do whatever they want to, you know, whether it's to deport persons of color, whether it's to harm children, whether it's to uh, prosecute those individuals seeking abortions and so forth. So there is a much larger world of harm that is out there when our information is out there as well. Yeah. And so I always think about how different privacy laws are from the sort of standard approach to consumer protection. And I know like I can speak about the Australian Privacy Act, which was introduced in 1988 when <laughs> there was no such thing as email. And, you know, it was amended over time, like during the time when, you know, in the 90s, when you maybe checked it for email twice a week, something like that. But essentially, these laws, the, these pri this privacy law, it takes a really different approach from the way we protect consumers in every other domain. Like I always mm -hmm. sort of like to tell people, hey, when you buy a toaster, does it come with a 1000 page booklet and they give you a pen and they say, sign here to acknowledge that we've 
built this toaster in a safe way and agree that we've done it in a safe way, you know, that just doesn't happen. They just ban mm-hmm. certain unsafe practices. And then it's up to the company to comply, to build a safe toaster. And you're not, you're not consulted on it, you know? <laughs> so there's something very strange about the way we do privacy. You're absolutely right there. We have constructed a regime where technology companies are purely online information gatherers are somehow different than other companies. They can create products that are manipulative, that are harmful, but they're not subject to the same kind of rules. Whether in the United States, it's something like Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is which immunizes uh, platforms, techn- uh, digital platforms from the harm caused by third-party uses of their platforms, so harassment, other forms of tortious conduct. Whether it's you know privacy laws that are so narrow that only refer or apply to certain types of information held by certain types of entities used for certain types of purposes. Um, We have essentially, and here I'll refer to another colleague of mine, uh, Julie Cohen at Georgetown University wrote a book called Between Truth and Power published in 2019, where she talked about how tech companies have done a really good job over the last 20 or so years creating, using the law to create zones of immunity around their business models. That includes, you know, protections, free speech protections. It includes trade secrecy protections, intellectual property cre- protections. It includes just what you're saying, talking about confusing contracts to uh, immunize their behavior from traditional tort and other types of rules. And then they use their power, their powerful connections to policymakers to implement more immunities to um, immunities to regulation, and then. Even more insidious is what I talk about in the book as to how these companies take laws that are supposed to rein in or regulate their the collection and uses and processes processing of data that they collect and essentially recast these laws rather than to constrain what they do instead to legitimize data extractive practices. So that's even something that we can't even see. And it's not technically illegal, but it is insidious. Yeah. And your book is focused a lot on the actual compliance kind of function or the, the privacy professionals in companies, right? You you spent nearly four years uh, researching uh, how companies comply with privacy laws and, and how they um, how the, the employees who are tasked with doing this work um, inside their organizations, right? Right. So not just, that's absolutely right, but not just privacy professionals, also uh, engineers and coders and uh, salespeople and executives, uh, lawyers and so forth. It is a book is an ethnography of three technology companies that I had the opportunity to be embedded inside for some time, as well as interviews with current and former employees of big tech companies. So the more famous ones. And That's important because privacy professionals alone don't see the whole story. Engineers who are coding these products especially don't see the whole story. Mm -hmm. And the lawyers are integral parts in not just separating the two, but also uh, recasting or focusing people's work on things that on tasks that end up being data extracted in the end, even if the people that they hire really do care about privacy. So what I do that other scholars haven't done is instead of just talking to a chief privacy officer, I take a look at the whole system, take a look at the whole organization and see how the organizational structures inside a company 
are manipulative in uh, emulative of their own employees, but also um, detrimental to how we actually protect privacy on the ground. Mm. And it seems like, and I you know, speak from personal experience as well, but you, you show this in your book that a lot of these privacy professionals and lawyers are involved in making sure that people can access a privacy policy, a very detailed one maybe, um, and whether they get a cookie banner popping up explaining what's happening to their to you know, how how the company tracks web activities um and but when you go and ask them yeah but what about the actual um designs of your technologies like are they you know what about default settings in your app or whatever um that are automatically data data maximizing you just get responses like but that's not what privacy law is and you know i can't <laughs> right. help but agree because that's really not what privacy law is so that's exactly right it's remarkable how many people that i see that have read the book that say this describes exactly what i what has happened to me in my in, in my job or this describes exactly what's happening in real life and yet everything that we talk about, everything that people say and everything that I talk about in the book paints a picture that is exactly uh, diametrically opposed to the premises and assumptions of privacy of privacy law and how people are thinking about privacy law. Mm -hmm. So when, when something like that happens, when, uh, when someone focuses a lot of their work on things like transparency and writing a really long and detailed privacy policy, what it does is it allows them to say, and it allows the company to say, we do, we care about your privacy. Here, look at all these things that we're doing. I remember sitting with a privacy department and one of these medium to large size companies and the uh, head of the, the director of this particular department was showing me the stack of papers, enormous stack of papers saying, look at all this work product that we've done in the last six months. And it was enormous. It was a lot of policies, a lot of reports, a lot of uh, new guidances, uh, impact assessment templates, and so forth. And then when you ask, okay, that's great. Here is a product that you released a year ago. And here is a product that you released uh, two weeks ago. The defaults and the privacy protections are minimal to non-existent. Or the defaults are the same. The privacy protections are minimal to non-existent. The privacy policy is longer you provide no additional protections for privacy despite all of this. So what impact are you having? And I get these blank stares and people's faces turn red when they realize that they're doing a lot of work such that it allows them to say, we care, we think about privacy, but they're not having an impact on the ability of a particular product to protect people's privacy, but they're also thinking about privacy in a really narrow way. If all you do is you work on privacy policies, I'm not saying every privacy professional or privacy lawyer does, but if what you're doing for a lot of your time is focusing on transparency and privacy policies, you think about privacy in terms of choice, in terms of choices or decisions that we make, in terms of information disclosure, and then the choices that we make as a result. Mm -hmm. And that is only one very narrow way of thinking about privacy. If you start to think about privacy in different ways, about trust, about power, then you would do very different things when you design your products than if you just uh, thought about it in terms of choice and design privacy policies, right? So when I got these blank stares and responses as if to say, well, that's not what we do here, it reflected this kind of co this consciousness that even people who genuinely see themselves 
as protecting privacy, engineers as well, people who generally see themselves as privacy advocates get recast or used inside a system where privacy means something so narrow that what they're doing may be quote unquote protecting privacy within that narrow definition, but because that definition is so narrow and corporate friendly, they're actually advancing data extractive goals in the end. And so in that way, it's very similar to any other capitalist industry, whether it's pharmaceuticals or banking, where the compliance people end up kind of, um, you know, performing this sort of um, role of, you know, doing the right thing by the consumer, but within limits set by the law, which is interpreted in a very technical and narrow way to suit the interests of the industry. Um, so in, in that way, I guess, not that different from other sectors, yeah? In certain ways, that's right, which itself is uh, maybe shocking to some people because in 2015, there was a book published that said almost the exact opposite. Scholars mm -hmm. had talked to chief privacy officers and they said, unlike other compliance departments, you have chief privacy officers that are filling in the gaps in privacy law. They're doing more. They're going above and beyond. Uh -huh. They're taking steps that aren't required by law. And I mean, let's say that that's the case. Let's say there are chief privacy officers out there that are trying to do that. Although we have no idea if what they told these scholars was pure puffery in marketing. Mm -hmm. But let's say there are people trying to do that. You have to see what the what is the connection between that and what happens on the ground, right? Is that is their interest in filling in those gaps trickling down to actual products and actually our experience on the ground with their products? And what I'm trying to show is that that's not it doesn't. And the reason why it doesn't is because of a combination of things, both the organizational structures, the way we think about privacy, and the law's reliance on internal structures. So in one sense, although it does seem like what happens in other industries, that's not what some people have thought would, that would happen or that does happen in the data space. But on the other hand, what is different in the privacy space than is in some other, um, other capitalistic industries where, that are he compliance heavy, especially in uh, the last 30, 50 years where we kind of all live in this neoliberal hegemony of governance mm -hmm. is that this is a particularly data intensive area of compliance such that you're not dealing with human resources or you're not dealing with um, other areas where law is traditionally established. You're dealing with an industry where, as I said earlier, the industry has done a really good job of immunizing itself from pretty much any regulation. So when you put on top of that, a compliance system that is built to channel all work into profit-making and data extractive work, then you essentially have an anything goes kind of uh, governance system that not only empowers industry, but entirely relies on industry to govern itself. And that is dangerous, especially as we exist in, a, exist in an economic system where these companies are now larger and more powerful than any other company that we have ever seen in history. Yeah. Um, so I'll ask you a little bit about the laws, the way they are now, and then how you ideally would like to see things go. So, I mean, in Australia, like basically all personalized marketing and data collection is almost always falls under um, 
a obscure legal rationale in one of our um, Australian privacy principles, which is reasonable expectations of the individual. So if the, if you can argue that the you know, your customer or whatever, the person browsing your website, reasonably expects that you're going to collect something or use or disclose some personal information, then that's okay. It's all good. You can do it. And it's been interpreted by the regulator and by the, the companies that you know use the law um, that uh, it, just putting something in your privacy policy, that's fine. Like that creates the reasonable expectation. Uh, but the, thing, the funny thing is, just because somebody has a reasonable expectation doesn't necessarily mean they think it's a good thing. Like I can have a reasonable expectation that I'm going to be, you know, you know, robbed in a very dangerous part of the city, but that doesn't mean it's a good thing or that the law should protect it, which is quite, <laughs> which is interesting. And then the GDPR has also this thing of legitimate interests, which basically allows a company to say, well, we have a legitimate interest to do X, Y, and Z. It's all good. Have you thought a bit about what an alternative kind of approach could be? Uh, what needs to be banned or what needs to be prohibited? Right. That's a really good question. And you're right to describe the situation as it exists. It's probably even a little bit worse, um, but getting to what we do instead. So I think what we need is a far more democratic, lowercase d, approach to governance Mm -hmm. of uh, a data economy. I mean, that means that all of these laws that are focused on procedure like the GDPR, right? The GDPR is a, the general data protection regulation in Europe. That's a procedural based law. It provides individual rights to data that individuals have to exercise on their own and requires companies to engage in certain procedures that govern, you know, the the ongoing collection and use of data, kind of rules of the game for data collection. Mm -hmm. These are, these are rules that, these are laws that rely on the company, regulated entities themselves. They They strip public entities of actual governance power because they're entirely dependent on what companies tell them is going on. The Federal Trade Commission in the United States is the same. So what would a different approach uh, look like? How could we bring things like collective action and democratic power and individual um, and people power to regulation uh, of data collection and processing. And I think there are certain things that that we can do. Instead of a right to an explanation of automated decision-making or instead of uh, a right to access information that was used in automated decision-making, which if you've ever used, if you've ever taken advantage of it, you click a button and then sometime later, a company will give you an extremely enormous spreadsheet with information that you alone can't, or most people alone cannot parse. And instead of this kind of access, what about uh, restrictions on the kinds of decisions that can be made using automated processing? Uh, what about banning uh, the use of information, uses of certain types of information? What about banning facial recognition technology as it, because of its uh, extreme risk? What about eliminating trade secrecy protections that allow these companies to be to essentially go to essentially have their algorithms uh, affect who goes to jail and who gets a who gets a long or short sentence in mm-hmm. a criminal justice system uh, that instead that in that algorithm has to be allowed to be interrogating as part of the adversarial process. Um, what about instead of focus instead of requiring individuals 
to through various individual rights to uh, impose to to create some sort of regulatory scheme of these companies like rights of, rights of access and rights of transparency or rights to correct all of which are fine but how about instead of just relying on individuals how about companies how about a radical transparency law that requires individual companies to publish reports that civil society and organizations can use to and then go ahead and sue companies on their own with funding go ahead and sue companies for data misuse or for uh for limitations or, or uh, misuses of data according to a law that restricts you know laws based on data processing that, that infringes people's civil rights or infringes people's human rights uh -huh. The people, European Union uh, advocate, uh, GDPR advocates talk all the time about how the GDPR is a human rights based law. It is to the extent that data protection and privacy are listed as human rights in EU uh, charter documents, but the law does not uh, allow conne any connection between any form of transparency of companies and civil rights organizations to allow them to sue on our behalf or individuals behalf when people's civil rights are violated, using the phrase civil rights, which is something we focus on in the United States as opposed to human rights in the European Union. So there are, and then there are tons of other approaches, right? What is having a real seat at the table look like when most privacy laws have been drafted with industry at the table? Why not, why shouldn't we draft privacy laws with victims of data crimes or data harms at the table? What does it really mean to you um, for participatory governance. Uh, what about collective action on the part of individuals and in civil society to uh, you know, bring important impact litigation against companies to prevent or ban certain types of uh, processing that has civil rights harms? All of these things are impossible under the current regime, partly because these transparency reports are minimal, they're not required, they're either not or they're not really transparent, they're not made public, uh, because individuals and organizations don't have the power to sue, uh, because the laws don't engage in any type of bans of practices, all they do is set rules of the road. Uh, so we need a totally different perspective where we're actually thinking about what does it mean for an industry to be governed by the people, as opposed to an industry governing the people themselves? Yeah. That's so interesting. And what you said there regarding the people's rights to um, to have some form of redress, it sort of triggered in um, the Clearview AI, the collection of facial uh, images. Mm. Have you followed that at all, the, that sure, company? The absolutely. Way, yeah. Do you, can you fill us in a bit on what they do? Because I understand they pretty much go around to police forces trying to sh sort of sell images, if I'm, if I'm correct. Yeah, so Clearview AI is this... Uh, I mean, I guess it's no longer a startup. It's been around for a couple of years already, but it has gathered, it says it has gathered the largest database of images of people's faces, mm -hmm. uh, billions and billions that they've just scraped from all over the internet in doing so violating terms of service on various websites. But they've gathered billions and billions of images such that they say they have the best facial recognition to algorithm out there, AI out there. And they have been, although they're subject to various lawsuits, for years they went around to police departments in the United States, in Canada, elsewhere, um, and to sell this technology. And facial recognition technology, whether it's Clearviews or others, have been already been used, right? The, 
a series of cameras that was installed on intersections in San Diego, California that was originally installed to monitor traffic patterns was upgraded to be used by the police for facial recognition to spot uh, scofflaws. In New York during the protests after the murder of George Floyd Mm -hmm. by the police, facial recognition technology was used to spot protesters on the street and allowed the police to to pull uh, marchers off the street and into unmarked vans because they had, an, they had a ticket, a, a parking ticket on their record. Mm-hmm. So we have, we have tons of examples of, and we have tons of examples of facial recognition technology getting the wrong person, right? Because the algorithm is only as good as the data that is used to train its AI. And when the data input is biased, when it doesn't include um, members of minority groups, particularly persons of color, other people, different um, cultural groups, then you're going to get people mistaken for other people. And it's also not entirely clear that we want that technology to be really good because mm-hmm. in, when it's really bad, it's uh, there are problems of mistakes and mistaken identity. When it's really good, it's totalitarianism. So yeah. facial recognition and Clearview AI really pose a, a really palpable example of the kind of autocratic potential of what technology can look like, even under current law, which everyone is saying is so much more strict given the GDPR and the California Consumer Privacy Act. Yeah, um, the, the regulator here has tried to say that, you know, has basically ordered them to stop collecting photos of Australians from the internet, but it's not really clear to me that Clearview AI is the kind of company that really pays much attention to, you know, the regulators of a small country. I think that's exactly right. I mean, how did they created a business model based on violating contractual rights impo- created by uh, websites themselves, right? The terms of service websites yeah. say you can't go ahead and scrape this information. So they didn't care about contracts. What's going to, why would they care about regulators? And I think there's a lot of reason for companies, technology companies, or those in the business of data collection to know that the law isn't really going to come for them because we don't really have a history of the law coming for them and they're bad actors. What's the worst that's happened? A, an, a, a federal agency, a federal reg- regulator in the United States find Facebook $5 billion for egregious, egregious violations of a previous consent decree. Facebook finds $5 billion in the cushions of its executives' couches. So that was, and nothing happened to the company. <laughs> so right. that's the strongest anyone's ever done, anything, anything anyone has ever done to a company like this. So they have, a, they have reason to believe that they're going to be allowed to get away scot-free. Mm. Are there any other like big, um, scary sci-fi-like stories out there like Clearview AI? Like, what are the big ones that, you, that come to your mind? Um, well, I don't think we're living in a sci-fi world. Like, this is all real. Um, and in fact, all of these companies that we talk about, not just the big ones, but even the small ones, are engaging in data processing that manipulates us. Everything that we see online is a curated list based on what someone thinks that we want to see. Uh, TikTok, which doesn't, get, which doesn't get a lot of attention. Like when yeah. you hear in the news about tech executives being hauled into UK parliament or the US Congress, you hear about Microsoft, you hear about Google, you hear about Facebook. Yep. You don't hear about TikTok. And yet TikTok is a data collection juggernaut that is a, that's a far more curated uh, curated list of, uh, of what you see and hear, and also an extensive censor 
it's content moderation practices. It is, it, TikTok is one of the active censors that is perpetual, that because of its practices is perpetuating the spread of Russian propaganda during its unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we don't hear about these kind of things because sometimes companies get to fly under the radar because of bigger companies like Facebook or Google. But if we only go after the Facebooks or Googles, all those companies have many billions and billions of dollars to just throw at a problem and then everything else keeps happening. Yeah. And what about police forces? What what, what have been the, um, has there been enough pushback so far to prevent, um, you know, egregious abuses of this kind of technology by police forces? Well, there is a growing movement to ban uh, facial recognition technology being used by governments and law enforcement. There is an organization, for example, one of many called Data for Black Lives that uh, spawned in the wake of the uh, George Floyd shooting and the related protests to focus on the ways in which police, law enforcement are using uh, or misusing or using data in order to perpetuate the carceral state here in the United States and in other other countries. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a growing movement for this. But um, conservatives, especially in the United States, have been really effective at recasting uh, policing reform as soft on crime. And we've seen this story before, decades ago uh, mm-hmm. in the United States. And uh, the whole attack of defund the police has been used against progressives in order to um, put, in order to say that we actually need more police. And even now you see progressive campaigns of progressives in like for the new mayor of Los Angeles, progressives like Mayor London Breed in uh, San Francisco and others who say we need more policing. And here Mm -hmm. in New York City, where I'm speaking from, we have a, you know, a proto-fascist mayor who doesn't believe in any, doesn't believe that anyone can criticize him, but also who's made a signature part of his campaign in his first term, more policing in the subways and on the streets. So Mayor Adams here in New York put more police on the streets. And then we had a subway shooter that injured, you know, 20 to 30 people, Um, even though, you know, there were more police on the, and and it turned out that the police's phone and their walkie talkie didn't even work. So there was no way for the police to get any help. So, so although there is a growing movement, that movement faces headwinds from a disingenuous conservative political machine. And I think we have to start bridging that gap between, say, privacy civil society, organizations that are focused on things like new agencies or private rights of action, which are very esoteric, very legalese, and civil rights groups on the ground that are concerned about people's lives, right? So if we bridge that gap of activism together, then maybe we can get a groundswell of support for stronger or what I've called a third wave of privacy law. Yeah, uh, that's, that's very, um, very interesting. I'm just going to sort of wind up now, but um, I thought I'd throw this sort of tricky one at you to wind up with, <laughs> and that's that there is a bit of uh, tension uh, on the left in terms of issues around privacy and COVID in particular. Uh, here in Australia, we, you know, we're sort of gradually these are disappearing, but you still have some organizations like the Sydney Opera House who are asking people to show uh, proof of vaccination. And then there's the the part of the left that says this is fine. And the part of the left that says, actually, you know, 
it's not this is not right this is not you know emergency settings like that that were established two years ago should really now come to an end so yeah there's the, that sort of tension there about you know the, the data collection and public health have you have you got any thoughts and opinions on that on that tension privacy is often about trade-offs there are very few rights the privileges and entitlements that we have in this world that aren't about balancing the needs and the rights of others there are lots of people, especially on the right, who don't think rights should be balanced. Like, for example, especially in this country, we have an entire industry of advocates for, for Christians and religious entities that feel that they should never have to balance their religious exercise rights against the rights of others, like queer people, like uh, people of different religions or people who have no religion, right? So there are the people who think about rights in terms of the lack of balance are the neo-fascist types, right? So all, all of this is about what is striking the right balance. So I don't think this is a problem on the left. This is a problem that we all face, but that the real enemies are people on the right. So what do we do, but more specifically, what do we do in a situation where, uh, where let's assume for the moment that data collection can be a source of public health? There's an extent to which that is a little overblown. Like we all remember those initial push during the early stages of the pandemic for those digital contact tracing apps. Yep. Uh, there were various designs throughout the world. Some were some just gathered everyone's data, personal information. Other ones were more privacy protected. Those really didn't go anywhere because they weren't providing, they were a tech solution in search of a problem. They weren't really providing so much benefit as over, you know, traditional contact tracing. But also, you know, when we think about privacy, we have to think about privacy, whose privacy, whose power, and who has the power and who's being left behind. So if we're trying to protect marginalized populations, we're trying to protect people who are immunocompromised, if we're trying to protect people, protect people's livelihoods, then there is a reason why within constraints, we might want to provide information so individuals can be protected. But that doesn't mean that a public health emergency means everyone has to give up everyone's data to a private company so they can profit off of it. Right. Uh, a couple of months ago here in the United States, we heard about a story of a um, crisis helpline or crisis text line, mm -hmm. which is a crisis hotline for people to call for kids, mostly or adolescents to call with feelings of suicidal ideation, self-harm right. Right. that was actually sharing information with a profit making entity in order to make money um, and sharing very sensitive information. Uh, they justified it by saying, well, we did an impact assessment, which goes back to what I talk about in my book about how those impact assessments are not protections at all. Uh, but also we do it because we want to make our product better, right? So there, or we want to make it accessible to more people. So we need to make some money. Um, the fact that we are providing a public health benefit is not an excuse for immoral, illegal, or um, unethical data practices. We can do both, but we have to balance it. So I think the balance exists. But what we've done with the law instead, the balance is this out there. What we've done with the law instead is we've gone entirely on the side of industry. We have just let them dictate what the law should look like out of this fear that law stifles innovation. That's the, that's the rhetoric we hear from companies and anti-regulatory activists all the time. 
But law does not stifle innovation. Law generates innovation. Law is generative itself. It guides innovation in a way that it accords with uh, public values. So what we need to do is, sure, accept the idea that sometimes our rights, or almost all the time our rights are going to need to be balanced, but we have to balance those rights within a system that adequately protects uh, the, our privacy rights. The reason why people were upset about contact tracing apps is because it exists in a world where a, comp a private company can collect this data and do anything they want with it, right? There's no law that prevents it. If we had a better right. privacy system where that puts constraints on these companies, then it would have been so much better. It would have been so much more capable of coming to fruition and then actually helping us. But because we don't, but because we've given over ourselves to this neoliberal fantasy of, in, of, of efficiency and industry innovation, then we're out of luck because we haven't balanced anyone's rights. We've just privileged industry's privileges. Professor Ari Ezra Waldman, thank you very much. That was really interesting. Uh, we'll put the links to the book and the article in Slate in the show notes. Really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I had a wonderful time. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed that little break from our regular programming. Arjun and I will be back with a regular conversation next week. See you then.